Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Governor Allen, uh, can you share uh, your involvement with the commission, why you decided to, to join uh, forces here, and uh, what you've experienced so far? Well, it was a great honor to be asked to be a part of this commission with uh, 16 other really top-notch individuals, uh, diverse people from all over the country in different uh, positions of experience and leadership. And uh, Kay James is someone who I think is just one of the best people I've met in my entire life. And she served as Secretary of Health and Human Resources uh, in my cabinet while I was governor. And, and with Heritage putting this together, I thought it was a way that I could bring a, a sense of balance and the concept of proportionality uh, to a lot of the aggravation um, that has been created, the devastation of jobs and livelihoods and lives and fear and projections and modeling and so forth. And uh, the great thing about working with Heritage and the truly exceptional staff is that we put all our minds together. We have the same principles of trusting free people and free enterprise, recognizing that public health is absolutely essential, as is the free enterprise system, and that this isn't all going to come from the federal government. In fact, the leads probably and should be, rightfully, by government closest to the people, and that's the states and governors and localities, as well as private industry. There is a, clearly a role for the federal government, whether it's Congress, whether it's the executive branch and, and civil society. And uh, I thought these recommendations that we, we all came together with were, were really good. And you're seeing already reactions to our recommendations. Our, our very first recommendation and our recommendations are some to governors, some to local officials, some to Congress, some to the president, some to society and, and non-governmental organizations and so forth. And then the first was, yes, follow data, testing is important, but open up, reopen safely in places where there hasn't been any you know, extraordinary, in fact, almost little, incidents of this COVID-19. And you're seeing governors taking the lead. And I think there's been, and they're showing the way, whether it's the governors of, of Tennessee or Oklahoma, Texas, Nebraska, South Dakota, Colorado, Florida, and others. And then there's others that are taking different approaches. Uh, and even in the, even in the Northeast, uh, where the New York City, New Jersey, Connecticut areas hit the hardest. I, I commend those governors in the Northeast for putting together a compact of those states for procurement. I loved hearing the governor of Connecticut, a Democrat, saying, we want to control our own destiny. I thought that's great. That's the kind of thing I'd say when I was governor as well. So I think you're seeing uh, governors not just looking at things in a very halting, delayed way, but looking at ways to safely reopen the economy. And, and some are are doing better than others. And I, and I think we, we see enough right now that in reopening, uh, we wanna do it safely. And these are what our recommendations say, and that is protect though those who are clearly vulnerable. And those are generally speaking, we're seeing it, that most of the deaths, the fatalities are nursing homes and long-term care centers. In Virginia and in many other states, the majority of the, uh, the fatalities are in these long-term care facilities. Generally speaking, elderly people, those with uh, underlying conditions are disproportionately uh, fatalities, as well as uh, those in the minority communities, particularly African-Americans. And so the people who are vulnerable need to be protected. 
whereas others and businesses ought to be able to come up with good safety protocols, disinfecting, sanitation, uh, and protections, and, and let them reopen. And every day that we wait is just another day uh, longer and ever getting to recovery and a return to something that is close to normal, but things are going to be changed for long term. But uh, I think that our recommendations are, are very positive, they're constructive, and they're not partisan. They're for all Americans, regardless of what state, what community, what region they're in, and regardless of their, of their backgrounds. Thank you, Governor. That is, that is very true. And Charmaine, picking up on that, uh, in fact, before I go to you, Charmaine, I want to say thank you to those who have asked a question. We'll get to those in just a moment. I, I would like to ask Charmaine uh, to expound on something that Governor Allen said. Uh, we, we did bring together a group of 17 people who have quite a diverse experience uh, in public health and government, uh, disaster response, uh, small business owners, people who have experience with large uh, corporations. Uh, so Charmaine, what went into the thinking behind uh, the group that was assembled and how have, uh, how have their diverse experiences helped uh, with the 179 recommendations we put forward so far? You know, that's one of the things that has been the most energizing and inspiring about being a part of this project, Rob. Uh, of course, it's always great to get to work with Governor Allen. And, and it just starts there. Governor Allen has brought to the table his expertise in what it, what it takes to run a state. And Heritage Foundation, through working with the commission, has really emphasized the importance of the federalism approach and having um, a state-oriented solutions. But we then added in, we have someone who's representing education, another person who served as a health secretary under both Republican and and Democrat governors. We have Noe Landini, who is uh, heads up Junction Bakery, which some of some of some of our uh, listeners may have may have visited in in down in DC and in Alexandria. So he has helped us focus on what it's like to be a small business owner in this crisis. We have um, representatives from the faith community, from uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, who is a di disability expert. So we've, we're seeing people who have bring very diverse perspectives and in that dynamism of having that kind of conversation, we're seeing recommendations come out from some groups that are focused entirely on the economy and other recommendations that are focused entirely on the health concern. And those are important, but what is exciting about the recommendations that this commission has put forward, you mentioned 179, you know, shoot, we should have gone for it and gotten 180 just to round it up. <laughs> Governor, we'll have to fix that. Um, That's all right. We, we have phase five coming for the future. <laughs> but I suspect we're going to be over 200 by the end of this. Exactly. And so it's broad based. One of the things that we've argued is that you have to have a whole of society approach to solving this problem. And there's so many different facets of it. We've also heard from over 700 people across the country who've gone to coronaviruscommission.org and told us their stories. So, so the report reflects not just the experts who are, have given of their time to serve on the commission, but also the stories we're hearing from real Americans all across the country. Yeah, one, one thing, by the way, Rob, that's yes. really important. Uh, I did one of these this afternoon with uh, the Thomas Jefferson uh, Institute for Public Policy, and we got calls from Florida and Tennessee and on a variety of different issues. And, uh, and I've always encouraged on whether it's Twitter or Facebook or any which way, any of you all who are watching tonight, we want to hear from you get your ideas, review these 179 recommendations, make sure they make sense to you. We've heard from folks and there was one we had in our first batch and they said they interpreted it differently. So we rewrote it in a way that made it more clear. And it's, it's I think very important to hear from the owners of the government, the people, uh, for any ideas that you may have that you think we should put in, uh, uh, because we're, we're going to have our final report in, in June, but we're getting things, re recommendations now as states reopen. And then the final, the final one will be focused on what we need to do going forward and making sure we build the supplies and, and so forth. And, and in the event there's a recurrence, that the response is not shutting down the government. Uh, the, the response, in my view, we'll, we'll discuss that as a commission. But any ideas that that you all have, go to coronaviruscommission.com. 
coronaviruscommission.com. And we'd, we'd love to hear your views and your views are very helpful to all of us on this commission. Well, Governor, with that, uh, let's, um, let's begin with some of the questions that we're receiving from our, our participants tonight. Uh, Catherine W. from the University of Pennsylvania asks, will we see a great difference between the individual states and the health of their respective economies based upon the dates that they decide to open for business? What other factors might come into play? Well, Rob, if you, you don't mind me jumping in there, that really sets us up for a point that I think is essential that people understand. The, the, it's, it's not just the difference in the states moving forward based on how they open up. The question is, how are they doing differently right now as we make decisions moving forward? It's really, really stunning when you look at the data from a granular perspective. Over 70% of the cases across the country are in only 10 states. 77% of the fatalities are in those states. And so the difference in how this virus is affecting different states is really, really striking and really important. It's not just um, if, you, if you focus all the focus our attention all the way across in the same way across all the states, you're going to miss the fact that there needs to be focused attention at these places where we're having real hotspots and real, real attack from the virus. Uh, I agree. And you're going to see, again, we've, we have enough evidence and I, we'll see how it, it uh, plays out. But what Charmaine said is true that if you want to look at where the hot spots are, where it's just been a disproportionate amount of, of deaths and, and the contracting of this disease, there are places that are densely populated where people use mass transit and in, in generally confined places. Nursing homes are high sometimes and maybe even a, a prison, but where people are confined and it, and it spreads. The, the solutions uh, are going to come on a local basis. In fact, even within a state, uh, there are differences. Even, even Governor Cuomo in New York recognizes that upstate New York, which is, is more rural and less crowded than New York City, which is the most dense place, I think, in, in the US, uh, that they may be able to open. A prime example, though, for you is, is a place called Bristol uh, that I think the national media has finally discovered. Uh, and it's, it's on the Tennessee-Virginia line. There's a street, State Street. On one side of the, the double yellow line is Tennessee. The other side of the double yellow line on State Street is Virginia. Tennessee has opened up. It's very sad for businesses on the Virginia side that are closed down because of government decree in Virginia to look across the street, literally, and see businesses, restaurants, and so forth opened up. And, and that's an example where if they followed our, our, if Virginia followed our approach, they would say, all right, the, the region of Southwest Virginia and, and Northeast Tennessee are really, it's a, a media market, everything's uh, a, a community that works very close together. And it would make sense that, that that area would be opened up as a region so they can work as a region. New York City is different than Sioux City. And, and then there's a place called Gate City on the Virginia side and on the other side, there's Johnson City, Tennessee. And, uh, and those regions ought to open up together. And it's logical, say, in the Northern Virginia area, or say you in Pennsylvania, the Philadelphia area, which is mostly in Pennsylvania, but across the rivers, New Jersey, that whole area ought to kind of work together as, as a region because there's a lot of people who live in New Jersey, work in Philadelphia, or vice versa. And so, uh, governors ought to work that way together by regions. And it's the same within the whole state of Pennsylvania. Yeah, you know, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, and then everything else is a uh, beautiful countryside and great crops and friendly people and freedom loving people as well. So I think that you're going to see that the states uh, that handle this well and in a balanced uh, approach are going to be those who uh, are going to come out of it quicker. Uh, than those that have halted with it. But that's, that's the, the prerogatives of, of the people in each state and their leaders they elected. And, uh, and there'll be measurement and they'll be held accountable uh, in the future when we do an after action review of who did well and who had the best practices. 
And I think uh, having been a governor, governors are very competitive for their states and the states that win, uh, generally speaking, that are gaining population are those states with comparatively lower taxes, less regulations, right to work laws where people are not compelled to join a union as a condition of work, where they have affordable energy costs and a skilled capable workforce from which to draw. And that's why uh, the states of, of Texas, Florida, Tennessee, Arizona, Nevada are doing very, very well. And states with high taxes uh, are actually losing population. And I think that may continue uh, if they don't improve it. We're looking at ways to improve uh, the competitiveness of our country and our commission. One of the recommendations we're making is to uh, consider a payroll tax holiday where uh, that would be less taxes on the individual worker as well as the employer for a temporary period of time. And that could help jumpstart our economy and, and make it uh, more encouraging to hire more workers on nationwide. Then the states can compete with one another on their attractiveness. Thank you, Governor. And as, as you indicated, um, one of the unique aspects of the commission's recommendation is they're organized both by phases. So we've released the first four of five phases, but then they're also organized uh, by audiences. So there are recommendations for uh, state government, local government, the federal government, which includes both the executive branch and Congress, and then finally the private sector and civil society, which we recognize plays an important role here as well. I wanna take our next question, which comes from Addison with the University of Notre Dame, uh, Young Americans for Freedom. And he oh, says, great. Addison says, what's the biggest obstacle to reopening the nation? That's the biggest obstacle, leadership uh, and understanding, and we're still learning. Uh, and I think you're seeing it uh, in the States. Everyone's burdened by the same federal policies, but I think where you're seeing the differentiation is the leadership in, um, in the way that different governors are, are looking at it. And, and, and by the way, because a state has been, say New York City or New Jersey or Connecticut have been hit hard uh, and harder than any other part of the country, I've, that doesn't mean that they have failed. They've done what the best they could do under uh, those circumstances, but I think that uh, you have, you also, it's, I hate to get into psychology, but people, some people are very risk adverse. Uh, there, if I remember, I'd always be trying to raise the speed limit on interstates, and people would be always worried about, oh, if you raise the speed limit, but heck, the interstates are designed and built for 80 miles an hour, and I, to me, it's dangerous to drive 55 on an interstate, you'd fall asleep. Uh, with it, but there, you know, there are people who are more risk adverse, and I think that uh, the the biggest the biggest problem is the unknown and leadership handling it in a balanced, measured, proportional way, and uh, and 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 designing solutions that fit the needs of those particular localities. And I think those who are doing that well are benefiting the people and the livelihoods and lives of people in their areas while safely reopening. Others are, are just a little bit more halting uh, with it. Rob, I would pick up on the, the, the point the governor just made about the unknown. We talk a lot about the fact that this is a coronavirus. I think it's important to emphasize it's a novel coronavirus. That I, I really like that word because it communicates a lot. If we remember that it's never been seen before, it, that's that's a pretty remarkable phenomenon to be to be dealing with a biological agent that is completely new. Our scientists around the world are racing to catch up to this new scenario, and it's turned out to be a pretty nasty bug. It affects different people in different ways. It affects men much more dramatically than it does women. It affects different, um, as the governor said earlier. It, it's 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 presenting differently in, um, in, in cities than it is in rural areas. Uh, we're, still, we're still learning a lot about how it's transmitted and how, how infectious it is. So I think it's important to recognize how far we've come in a very short period of time. But I think it's also, uh, it, it also behooves us to be very sober and prudent about how we interact with something that's new because there's a lot to learn for 
us as a culture and as, as policymakers as we think about how we react to something that's new. Charmaine, maybe I'll stick with you on this one. Your, uh, your institute at the Heritage Foundation uh, includes our Center for Education Policy. And this next question comes from a student at UC Berkeley who says, many students are suing my school for tuition reimbursement. Do you think universities should refund students? And if so, do you think that colleges will be forced to shut down? I know the commission's latest recommendations include um, some, some comments on what, uh, what can happen in the higher ed space. Do you want to kick this off? I think that's a tough one and we're still in the middle of talking about exactly what the higher ed space is going to look like moving forward. One of the things that we have talked about quite a bit is encouraging the move towards the online approach because it, it, the, the, the higher ed space is uniquely able to transition in a way to deliver their product online. It, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily ameliorate these economic consequences that our questioner is, is alluding to. And I think it's one of those things that very, it's, it's really a good thing that we have the summer to take a look at some of these structural barriers and structural concerns and start to see how we can um, approach in the ed space doing a, doing a better job as we move into the fall. Have, have it, be, being a, uh, the Reagan Ranch Presidential Scholar for the Young Americas Foundation. I love all the young people who, who are, are involved in the Leadership Institute and for this education. And higher education, some of the smaller schools are gonna have a hard time uh, with this and just staying afloat. I think there's gonna need, and one of our recommendations is to consider collaboration with other universities. The universities that have medical research are, I think, going to be part of the solution insofar as testing and, and research. Uh, through all of this, while everything is unknown and there's, you know, we want to have data, we want to have testing, we're worried about our, our hospitals are going to be so inundated that they're not going to be able to handle it. So therefore, hospitals were shut down and people weren't getting immunizations and, and dental services and all the rest. We're seeing that, and, and, and say New York City again, prime example, they send up the naval ship Comfort uh, and they create the gigantic hospital in the Javits Center. Well, it, they weren't needed. And so a lot of things that were a reaction to forecasts, heck, the president was talking about the original modeling was a million to two million Americans dying. It's, it's gonna be obviously a fraction of that and that and that was based on 50 percent i think uh, of people staying at home keeping your distance and washing your hands and so forth so i think the colleges and universities that are mostly made up obviously of young people who so far haven't shown to be a a um, group that has a high fatality rate uh, will will have different approaches i i was uh, Mitch Daniels, the president of Purdue University, I think is showing great leadership. And I think he may be one of those uh, that others may want to emulate, not just in Indiana, but across the country as they safely reopen. And, um, and I hate to be humorous about things, but uh, you gotta have a sense of humor. Somebody, uh, I think it was on Tucker Carlson's show or Jesse Waters or whatever. And they said, tell the Southerners you got to stay home, otherwise you won't get football in the fall. And, uh, but I think that would apply in the Big Ten country uh, as well. Okay, our next question comes from Julia from the University of South Carolina, uh, oh. who, who asks, if there is a resurgence of a COVID-19 outbreak in October or November, what actions do you believe state and federal government should take? A lockdown or two-month quarantine again? When What are the ramifications on the economy long term? Well, go Gamecocks. Our youngest daughter is graduating from the University of South Carolina. Uh, we had a party last night in Cinco de Mayo for her. Uh, they won't obviously have a graduation there at the Horseshoe in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, here, here's what I think in the future should be, and I think this will be part of our phase five, Charmaine and, and Rob and, and others with our commission, is that it should be targeted. I think that if there's a spike, you look at, right, first of all, it should be analyzed by zip code, not just county, but by zip code. Uh, and 
if it's if it is a, a senior center or long-term care facility, if it's a prison, if it is what it, whatever the people who need to be protected, who are vulnerable because they have these underlying conditions, and maybe it's a heart problem, maybe it's emphysema, uh, maybe it's pneumonia or diabetes, whatever, and we're learning all this. And those folks really need to be protected and they need to be quarantined, whereas all the rest really uh, need to be able to go and work. I, I, I would hope and it is my goal is to find ways that in the event that this virus recurs or any other such event arises in the future, that never again will be the, the government response will be to condemn and shut down people's businesses, their property and their, their livelihoods. Rob, one thing that I would mention is that two of our commissioners are medical doctors, Dr. Bill Frist, who was the majority leader in the United States, United States Senate for many years, medical doctor, and also Dr. Richard Tubb, who was involved in the Bush administration in the response to the SARS outbreak. So in working with them and having them look at the science, the, the report that we just released yesterday involved phase three, which talks about focusing in on the science and building the science. And look, I'm always gonna be an optimist. As we look forward, I, I think we do have to be prudent and sober about the possibility of the, of the virus coming back in the fall. That's what we're hearing from the experts. We don't disagree with that, but I would say that every single day we're growing in our knowledge of how to fight this thing. And one of the things that's really encouraging to me, looking at phase three and the recommendations that we put out there, is that we've been hearing from clinicians on the front line. It's a little discouraging because they, what we're hearing is there's, they've been so much in the midst of the crisis of dealing with what's right in front of them that there hasn't been as much communication amongst, say, the physicians on the front line in New York with the physicians on the front line in Los Angeles. We believe the physician, the, the commission, is speaking into this place and, and helping to bring people together and recommending to the Centers for Disease Control that they step up and provide um, strategic pathways for those, for those conversations to be happening in ways that helps to develop the science and takes us to the next level in our approach in developing therapies that will um, best tackle what the, the differing kinds of ways that people are presenting with the virus. So I'm really optimistic when you look at how far we've come in a short period of time and you look forward to the time that we have um, in, in the fall, I believe that we're going to make tremendous progress by then. And we are making a lot of progress. Yes. We really are. And, I, and, uh, and some of it is part of similar recommendations, uh, acting on our recommendations on uh, turning down a lot of the regulatory roadblocks to a lot of research. And that people are, you know, and I know that the vice president, Mike Pence, said how much they appreciated uh, our commission being created. And some of the roadblocks that are being uh, kicked out of the way have a lot of competition amongst pharmaceutical companies and others coming up with a therapeutic antivirals as well as vaccines, which normally take years. And we'll see if they, they get them done or not. But I think what, what we're finding is a lot of creativity and uh, recognizing that all businesses, what's going to happen, Charmaine, clearly is, and listeners, viewers, is places are going to have to be disinfected. Uh, workers are going to have to, their safety is vitally important. Customers coming into a facility are going to want to have the confidence that it is safe. Um, and so for, for the workers, the employees, for the customers, uh, all need to be safe, and uh, and I think we're finding ways that will work. But, and some of this this distancing, people keeping their distance, that's going to be with us, and I for for at least a while. Same with washing your hands, and uh, but clearly sanitation, disinfecting. In fact, that they're talking about these cleaning cleaning the subways in New York City, maybe for the first time in 115 years. But those places. Or just just filthy. You all see those videos of rats eating pizza in the New York City subways, and uh, and they and and they, but the subways, mass transit for a place like New York City is absolutely essential for that for that 
type of place to function because people can't afford to have a car there. The parking's too high, taxes are too high, and there's that's simply a, a lot of reliance on mass transit. So each place is going to react differently, but I think the basic uh, things that Charmaine that you led on in, in phase three make a great deal of sense of following the science, following the data, and act on it, not to, and, but not act in fear. So don't be paralyzed by fear, do it with information, knowledge, and, and moving forward. Well, that's a good lead into our next question. Before I, I go to that question, I want to remind our participants that they can find the full set of recommendations at coronaviruscommission.com. And you can also leave us your ideas and recommendations for how we should reopen America. We've relied on the more than 700 that we've received already, and we would love to have uh, your ideas as well. The next question relates to public education and I, I suppose personal responsibility that, that Governor Allen and, and, and Charmaine were just talking about. Sierra from uh, Young Americans for Liberty at Ohio State University says, what is the strategy for getting the public on board with opening as early as we want to? And I will tell you that I had the opportunity today to, uh, to take my, my two uh, elementary school children to a dental cleaning and the dentist told me that the biggest challenge she has right now is convincing her, her employers, her dental hygienists, that it's safe to come back to work. Uh, she said the customers are ready to come back, it's some of the employees who have fears. So what do you recommend uh, that we can do to make sure that they feel safe and secure? One of the things that we have recommended in phase three, which is the, the, the chapter on building the science, is that, that there are a lot of people who are fearful and having a difficult time with something, as we said, that is so new, of sorting through the science. There's almost too much that's out there, competing, competing perspectives, competing, uh, competing, you know, dueling data sets, right? And I think it's been very good to hear consistently, consistently from the White House Task Force. We called on the administration to continue communicating in a way that as the science develops, that they're using technology in ways that gets, gets certifiably good and, and truthful information to the people as effectively as possible. There's a website called coronavirus.gov. Um, where our argument is, is that the administration should be using tools like that so that they can put the information that, that people can have a confidence and a trust in knowing that they're getting good information. They, they should be, as we learn and, and know more about how we can most safely move forward, they can be doing communication vehicles patterned after the opioid advertising so that, we, so that we're able to get out there and reassure people um, how is the best way to move forward. And, you know, Rob, I, Rob, I had to smile because I, one, of our, one of our listeners kind of stole my line. I saw them say, grandma was right. You know, at the end of the day, all of our grandmothers have been have been vindicated. There's some really basic common sense things that public health are, are telling us that, you know, Governor Governor Allen was saying: wash your hands, um, you know, don't don't be shaking hands, get good sleep, eat right, um, and and we'll be maintaining social distancing in terms of not not being in very tightly densely packed areas for some time moving forward. Great. Well, let's go to the next question, which comes from Isaac from UMass Lowell. Uh, Isaac, I'm going to ask the second part of your question because I think we've answered the first. Uh, it says, how can the state government ensure that all people follow the rules to wear a face mask? Um, the last lack of mask resource or disobedience with the order. Uh, if schools reopen in the fall, who would have the authority to implement it? Uh, it's very risky when the number of cases is quite high, but a small amount of some people can trigger a second outbreak in a community. Let me, I, I, first of all, supplies are going to be very important going forward. PPE, that's one of our supply chains. So much of our supplies are coming from China and elsewhere. And so I, I, we need to stockpile more PPEs. I, I think we probably now have enough ventilators. Manufacturers of automobiles uh, are we're not making, uh, whether it's Ford or GM, weren't building Tahoes or Broncos or uh, pickup trucks, they were building ventilators and others are, are shifting into, into uh, face masks and, and gowns and gloves and all the rest. And, and you know, the, the manufacturers in World War II, not that this is World War II, but 
World War II, the manufacturers were called the arsenal of democracy and manufacturing in the United States now is the, the, the arsenal of health. And so for people who, who need masks uh, to perform their jobs or if people want masks uh, going around uh, anywhere, then, then we need to have supplies of it. And we're ramping up uh, very strongly. Now the question on, on uh, who's gonna enforce it, this gets into a really uh, interesting point, and that is uh, our civil liberties are not to be limited any more than they already have been. And any limits on people's freedom needs to be, uh, and we have this in our recommendations, the least uh, burdensome alternative or the least strict way of, of enforcing whatever the, the, the law or regulation or protocol is. And so, uh, there are going to be people, again, who are, are very worried. Uh, the, your dental office situation that you're talking about, Rob, are, are some of the, the, the dental hygienists who are really key for scraping people's teeth. Uh, you see more of them than the, the dentist who comes in only if there's a, a problem. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's going to take people some time to have that confidence. What we're trying to do, and as Charmaine said, and especially in phase three, is, is don't be paralyzed by fear. Understand what we have learned, what we are, are gaining, knowledge we're gaining, and what are the very best protocols to make one safer. So uh, I think that if some state says that people have to wear masks, I think there's going to be a lot of people not wearing a mask. I'm not talking about people in a restaurant or a manufacturing facility or a dental office or any medical office. If, if you're gonna make people walking around and they're keeping their distance, you're gonna say everyone's gotta walk around wearing a mask. Uh, everyone's not going to wear a mask. And uh, you saw this situation in Dallas on the news where this woman opened up a hair salon and the judge gave her a seven day sentence. Uh, it's just absurd. Uh, out of that. Somebody's just trying to open a business and doing it uh, safely. And so uh, I think those that are too heavy handed are, and if they don't make sense to the people, many people aren't going to follow it. And it makes it very difficult for law enforcement when you become over prescriptive in ways that don't make sense or don't make common sense uh, of necessity of, of, of the inconvenience of such, such laws. Our next, our next question comes from Hannah uh, from the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay, who asks and says, I know that the president has talked about the possibility of having a vaccine by the end of the year. Do you think that is possible? And if that does not happen, is there a plan moving forward for the future? I think the vaccine is, is difficult. I will say I agree with Governor Allen that I keep, I keep thinking about the same example he used, the arsenals of democracy. This, this country has a history and a track record of putting the pedal down and finding solutions where there weren't solutions before. So, so I remain an optimist. I will say that the vaccine is a, is a more difficult task than finding the therapeutics. I'm seeing a lot of, of, of real, real innovation going on and real progress going on in the clinical realm. And so, um, so I, I'm more optimistic that we're going to find therapeutics and ways to deal medically with the coronavirus. And that will be another way of, of tackling this. You know, we have, we have gone through coronavirus um, trajectories before. And so uh, scientists are fairly optimistic that summertime is going to give us a little bit of a reprieve. So I think there's several different routes that lead us to um, finding ways to cope better than we are right now. I agree. I, I was on a nanotechnology uh, call. I, I was the author of the National Nanotechnology Initiative, co-sponsor with uh, Ron Wyden. And uh, we're talking, talking with doctors, and Charmaine's exactly right. I think the antiviral therapeutics are much more likely to be uh, prevalent and there's many, many uh, much advancements in that area. And that'll all be available really by this fall. Uh, just think of the fact that uh, 
everyone says we've cured AIDS. Well, there's never been a, a vaccine for AIDS. It's, it's being handled and saving lives with therapeutics. Uh, the same with dengue fever. On the other hand, things like polio um, and other diseases like that, they, 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 they doesn't have, they call it genetic drift or mutating. I hate to get into science, but you're college students, so well, here's your science course. If, if, if COVID-19 mutates, if it changes, it's much harder to find an effective vaccine. And you have to make sure the vaccine is safe and does no harm, then you gotta figure out if the vaccine is actually effective on top of it. And so we still don't know. In fact, there's even questions whether the, the, the virus that hit the East Coast in New York City is different than the one that hit the West Coast and whether it mutated from Italy to say New York City versus the ones from, from China directly. It all came out of Wuhan, China, but uh, all of that's the science that's gotta be figured out. The other thing is, is there's, and Charmaine talked about the innovation of our private sector, there's a company called Centera, who uh, has, and I gotta look at it more, but they call it UVC. It's a C, C, the C is in Carolina, C-ray of ultraviolet light for disin using ultraviolet light for disinfecting. It is the same effect as the sun, and it's been shown that the sun kills off this virus, hot, humid, sunny weather is great for killing off the virus. Now in indoor places, uh, using these ultraviolet uh, uh, technologies is a way that be, could be used to clean airports, airplanes, office buildings, hotels, a variety of places that uh, sanitation and disinfecting uh, surfaces is really important. So I think we're gonna find many great ideas in, in making sure that we are safer and reducing uh, the incidence and uh, the contracting of this disease, as well as therapeutics, which are much more promising than a vaccine that may take as much as a year. Wonderful. Uh, I have a couple of questions that I'll combine here uh, as, we're, as we're getting close to, to the end of uh, today's uh, digital town hall. Susanna asks if the commission is engaging entities like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the Department of Labor and Department of Education and Daniel asks about the National Association of Manufacturers and how they can become more helpful in assisting the president in the economic battle with China, uh, given its lack of uh, fair play concerning pharma pharmaceutical issues. So, uh, so I'll, uh, Charmaine, maybe you can talk about the, uh, some of the experts who've testified before the commission, and then Governor Allen, I'll let you uh, handle that one about NAM. Right. Exactly. The, the, head of, the head of the National Association of Manufacturers, Jay Timmons, came and gave us testimony in front of the commission. So we've been hearing from a, a pretty diverse group of outside experts, as well as the experts who have given up more of their time to serve on the commission. Um, so with that, Governor, I'll let you, I'll let you elaborate on that a little. Yeah, well, one, one of the things that uh, the, the National Association of Manufacturers cares about and, and and in fact, it, it crosses all businesses, even Mr. Landini's uh, restaurants and all the rest is a worry about liability. There are these sharp uh, plaintiff's lawyers who are already looking to file lawsuits and manufacturers and indeed all businesses need to have some liability protection. If they're making a good faith effort to comply with CDC guidelines for the safety of their working men and women, as well as uh, their, their methods of production, even, even for pharmaceuticals, then they should have that, that safe harbor. Uh, one of the things that manufacturers, we already mentioned that they're, they're arsenals of healthcare. So they're working, they're ramping up, helping supply uh, chains and a variety of ways of getting, uh, especially this, this uh, personal protective equipment to those heroes, those frontline healthcare workers who are risking their, their health and lives every day. I think what, what the, the manufacturers will understand, would like, and as far as safe supply chains, we have so much that, is, that, uh, that comes from China. And it, I think for, for America, we, for all manufacturing, for any businesses, we need to make sure that America's uh, United States tax and regulatory policies make the United States the best place in the world to make anything. And, uh, 
and then I think we'll be more secure that way. They'll be good for jobs, and what means that means is you have to write tax, energy policies, regulatory policies, work with the government to recruit creative people so that we can have the most advanced manufacturing uh, in the world. We have the energy in our country. We have our, our tax laws are much better now with the, the tax reform of 2017. We once had the highest taxes in the world on incorporated businesses. Now we're better than average. And so uh, we wanna make sure that you're always looking at the competitiveness of our country and whatever can be done nationally as well as at the states ought to be done because I, like most people, we like to see things made in the USA and for our supply chains, if it's not made in the USA, part of phase four that we talk about is make sure that we have it with reliable, trusted trading partners. The passage of USMCA means we can maybe get more of our supplies out of Mexico or Canada. We also recommend in, in uh, phase four, a trade agreement with the United Kingdom, as well as Europe, Japan, South Korea, uh, those countries. And I think all of that uh, is beneficial to, to freedom-loving countries, it's beneficial to American uh, consumers and beneficial for more job opportunities here in the United States. If you have a, a, a government, a government policies at a state or federal level that say, are our states open for business or the United States is open for business? Our next question comes from Christian from Piedmont Virginia College, who asks, should we be worried about the novel coronavirus evolving to spread through animal populations? If it can evolve this way, it would heavily damage hotspot urban areas even further. I'm gonna let Charmaine answer this question, but my father-in-law taught computers at Piedmont Virginia Community College. It's outside of Charlottesville, just below Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. I have Thomas Jefferson right behind me. There. All right, Charmaine, you answer the question. You know, I think that's one of those, I think that's one of those questions that we don't know the answer to. We did see that there was one report of animals getting coronavirus, but it, but it hasn't seemed to have spread within the animal population so far. So I don't think that that's something that people are, are particularly concerned about at this juncture, but I don't know that we have a definitive answer on that. There's still, there's still a lot to learn about this virus. The big worry is that the packing sheds uh, for poultry and, and beef and hogs. Uh, some of those have been hot spots in South Dakota, Iowa, also in, uh, on the Eastern shore of Virginia and Maryland. And so those are facilities that need to be safe. It's not because the animals have the virus, it's that the, the workers get it. And so that's really affecting our, our supply chain for, for meat. And that's another area that needs to be focused upon. Well, we have another Virginia College student here. This one comes from Kelsey uh, from the College of William and Mary, College Republicans, who says, notwithstanding the turn of the legislature in Virginia, why should Virginia protect the right to work law in an effort to protect its economy and jobs, which are even more at risk due to the effects of COVID-19? Governor Allen, you want to take that one? Look, if you care about Virginia being competitive and attracting more investment and more jobs, our right to work law is really essential. I spent more time as governor trying to get business to come to Virginia and we were very, very successful. We'd go up to New York and New Jersey and get businesses to come to Virginia and international businesses. The first words out of my mouth in promoting Virginia was, we're the furthest state north on the Eastern seaboard with a right to work law. And businesses, if you don't have a right to work law, you won't even be on the field of competition. And it's it's a matter of personal liberty that someone should not be forced and compelled to pay union dues as a condition of having a job. They can organize, they can join a union if they so desire, but they shouldn't be uh, forced to do so. And in fact, there's empirical data that shows that states that have right to work laws have much more growth in population and jobs and opportunities than those who restrict that freedom of workers. And so it's absolutely essential. And in fact, if you, if you really got, if you got rid of the right to work law, I mean, it, it would be so damaging to Virginia. It's sad that it was even considered uh, and, and got some traction in the last General Assembly session. When that was going through, I, in fact, I wrote an op-ed on, on how 
important the right to work law is. And I was thinking, gosh, if I were the governor of North Carolina or South Carolina or Tennessee, Georgia, states that compete with Virginia, I'd, I'd be saying to any prospect, you know, some uh, decider uh, for a business, you, you don't want to go to Virginia. You don't have the certainty that they won't knock out the right to work law. And so I, I think it was a mistake even to, it's, 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 I think, harmful that it's even considered seriously by some leaders in the Virginia legislature. But fortunately, it was defeated, and hopefully it stays graveyard dead and gone. I'm talking about repeal, <laughs> I'm talking, but we should, we should keep it, definitely. Well, thank you. And I also want to thank all those who have asked these, these great questions tonight. Very, very insightful and uh, in detailed questions. Uh, the next one comes from Nicole with Indiana University Turning Point USA chapter. What's the most important thing that the public needs to know during the transition period to reopening? I think they need to know what their local circumstances are. Going back to the fact that there are 10 states, only 10 out of 50, that have 77% of the cases. There are a whole handful of states that have had zero fatalities. So I think knowledge is power. Knowledge is a way of reassuring yourself that, um, that, that not every area is affected as deeply as some of the hotspots that are getting all of the headlines. Charmaine and Governor Allen, maybe as a follow-up to that, we have a question that says, why can't we encourage those who are part of vulnerable groups to quarantine and let healthy people function as normally as possible, self-quarantining when they feel sick? Well, they should. That's the, that's the personally responsible thing to do now and in the future. Uh, and I think most employers uh, who want to have these, these, these Good Samaritan protections are gonna have these type of policies that if somebody is sick, uh, feels sick, don't come into work, don't you know, uh, contaminate uh, or spread this virus to others. There was a question, I've, one of the earlier questions about what if this recurs in, a, in, a, in any sort of targeted, smart targeted approach is that any, anybody who, who has symptoms needs to be isolated or quarantined. And, uh, and and don't you know in such a way as that they're not infecting others, and so that's that's definitely the approach that ought to be taken. It's just common sense and personal responsibility. Okay, and we're going to use this as our last one, and it's a great setup for both of you to talk about what the future holds for the commission. Stephen Clifford from Louisiana State University, uh, Young Americans for Liberty, says, "What can we do to prepare for a future pandemic?" Huh, what a great question. We're working on that right now for the final, for the, for the final, final report that'll be coming out in the second week of June. There's a whole, whole area of different facets of getting ready for the next time. I think one thing is to be realistic about the fact that, you know, people have said, well, why didn't we have enough ventilators or why didn't we have enough PPE? You know, there, because uh, the definition of something being new is that it was not necessarily predictable. We may not be able to know that we're going to stockpile exactly the X, Y, Z specific uh, targeted thing that is going to help address the next one. But what we can do is look at our systems that are of how we work together and, and what our processes are as we, as we move forward. One of the things that the Heritage Foundation was writing about even before this pandemic started and that we've been referring back to a lot is how difficult it is to, to be innovative and to move fast in a bureaucratic environment when you've got a lot of regulations. And so that's one of the things that we're going to be very focused on, both as we put together the final chapter that looks at, the, at being ready for the next pandemic, but, but we'll, be, we'll be sounding that theme as we move forward of saying, one of the reasons that the testing was such a challenge in the beginning was that we needed to let go of some regulations that weren't serving us well. And, and that's going to be true for getting us set up for, the, for, for whatever comes next and the next challenge, because there always will be a challenge over the horizon. Well, let, let me finish with, uh, first of all, congratulating, congratulating the LSU Tigers and their great national championship. Go Tigers, G-E-A-U-X, Tigers. Uh, and thank you for your question. 
and and we do need to reduce the the future risk of uh, future pandemics, whether it's this one or or another virus. Uh, we've talked enough about how it needs to be targeted in the future. We've learned a lot from it, as as Charmaine has said, and we're still learning. And uh, I think what we need to make sure that supply chains are reformed. We need to we do need to stockpile these antiviral. Uh, therapeutics, particularly for this uh, corona, COVID-19 or novel coronavirus. Um, and, the, and I think it needs to be invested in these, in these various stockpiles. And it, it'll be a combination of the states. I like what the Northeastern governors are doing and, and having a consortium, a compact of states, so they have better uh, purchasing procurement uh, powers with it, and uh, I think that will be a state and federal responsibility. I think that uh, obviously we're going to try to get whatever vaccines, and some of these vaccines and some of what's going to come will not be from the United States. There's some promising work in Israel, in Europe, and places like France and, and Britain and, and Japan, and so whoever ends up with the best uh, approaches, we need to make sure we have it. Uh, for those vaccines. And I think we're also going to need, uh, uh, because we want to get back to international travel and international trade and tra travel even within the United States. And I think some biosurveillance type aspects are going to be es essential uh, for trusted travel uh, for, for people around the world. Now that's going to take a while for people to feel comfortable with it, but these are some of the things that we're going to be looking for in the future. Where, where you have targeted approaches for outbreaks, but we're much more ready and have a much better supply chain, a reliable supply chain, because you have, you have stockpiles of it ahead of time. And also just the management of it, where I, I think it'd be much better if, if the federal government or you had someone helping on this dis distribution where you're getting it to where it's needed the most. It's like firefighters, where are you gonna send out the fire trucks, uh, and you may have a lot of different fires, but there's some conflagrations that are bigger than others, and that's where you're going to need to send out more resources and equipment. So, I, I'm confident that we're going to we're going to get through this. Like Charmaine, I'm optimistic because I think the United States uh, built on the concepts of individual freedom and equal opportunities for all, property rights, our free enterprise system as well as other freedom-loving countries, we're going to come up with ways that are, are much more targeted, much better approaches than, than caging free people and free enterprise. And the sooner we're uncaged with, with smart, reasonable, proportionate ways of handling this, the better off we'll be. And, and it's a great honor to work with Rob and Charmaine, the Heritage Commission, and, and this entire the Heritage Foundation and this entire commission and, and young people uh, have some great ideas great questions and please share with us what you think ought to be done it is your future it is your future that's also getting loaded with a lot of debt with all the spending on this so it's really important that you all as a smart young informed uh, interested and active young leaders we want to hear from you your voices need to be heard. And so please go online, share with our Coronavirus Recovery Commission uh, your ideas because it's your future that we care most about. And you're gonna be the leaders that will be carrying the torch of freedom for generations to come in a much more prosperous and less fearful society. That's so true. Thank you, Governor Allen. Again, that website is coronaviruscommission.com where you can find all of the recommendations and uh, leave us uh, your ideas for how to reopen America. Uh, we've been uh, really um, grateful for all who have participated tonight. We're also grateful for those leaders throughout our country who are paying attention to the recommendations we're putting forward. Uh, Kay James, who's the chairman of our commission and president of the Heritage Foundation, serves on President Trump's task force, so she's delivering the ideas directly to him and the White House, and we're doing the same with governors, local leaders, and the private sector. Um, I want to remind our participants tonight to take the survey from the Leadership Institute to let us uh, let them know how, how tonight's event uh, went. And uh, I want to thank Charmaine Yost, uh, my colleague at the Heritage Foundation, 
and uh, former Virginia Governor George Allen for your excellent uh, information that you shared with us tonight, answering so many great questions from our participants. Uh, we hope you have a great evening. Uh, we would encourage you to stay safe, uh, heed those guidelines, and do your part. Uh, as Kay James says, we will get through this together, uh, but it will require us uh, all playing a role. So thank you, and have a good evening. And thank you to Morton Blackwell and the Leadership Institute for your tremendous leadership as well.